Hello, welcome to episode 145 of Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen, and uh, coming up is the interview that uh, James Carey and I did recently with Rufus Jones, star and writer of the top Channel 4 sitcom Home. Uh, They've had two series of that and uh, did really well, and big, very popular show, hoping post pandemic to get a series three. And um, we'll be running part two of that uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Just catching up now with a, a bit of late July, early August news. Don't forget the Rowcliffe BAFTA scriptwriting competition, uh, which is um, coming to, coming to a close now. The window is open for another few weeks. It closes on September the 7th. That is a competition where you send in 10 pages of your sitcom or five sketches, or five times two-minute webisodes, which is not a word that I'd heard before, and I'm hoping that I won't hear that word again. Anyway, if you've got five by two-minute webisodes, then send them, or your sitcom, or your sketches. Uh, It's £42 to enter this competition, um, for which you get uh, a a lot of feedback uh we've asked around a few people if they think is that good value and um, most people have said yes it is very good it's definitely worth entering that few other things coming up uh, last week we interviewed jenny eclair which was great and that'll be coming up soon if you want to hear that before it goes out uh, you can sign up to patreon uh, we have a patreon site that's kind of what helps keep us going and making this uh, all happen uh, we're very grateful to all the people who've joined and and um, are helping us with that and we've got a few people who've joined in the last couple of weeks so i'd like to say a big welcome and hello to Luke Hedon, Samuel Alamang, Craig Sheldon, Richard Keane, and Hi Lee. So thanks all of you for joining uh, Patreon. You get lots of uh, little uh, goodies and things when you join up, and um, hopefully more of you will do that, and that helps us to create more content for you. And uh, we've got, um, in fact, James and I are working on a sitcom that we've been kind of talking into existence for the last few months or so. Uh, We had a bit of a hiatus with that when the... uh, pandemic came along uh but we'll be uh, bringing that back to life hopefully and have something for you uh, in september and um, we've got episode 150 coming up not sure what's going to be happening with that but we're all very excited so uh, as i say it'd be great if you could join us on patreon if not just listen now because we are going to start with part one of the rufus interview Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. I'm Dave Cohen. And today we have a wonderful guest. He is a star of uh, the small screen on W1A, Hunderby, Camping and many, many other shows. And he's also a star of the big screen uh, with Stan and Ollie. He is called Rufus Jones. Hello, Rufus. Hello, everyone. Hello, James. Hello, Dave. Hi there, and uh, if I could just mention as well, actually, most recently, Rufus, not only the star, but also the writer of uh, two yes. series of the great uh, Channel 4 series, Home, of which we'll yes. be talking a great deal, I'm sure. But Because, uh, frankly, you're, you, this, cause you're of no use to us unless you've written a sitcom, frankly. Clearly, no, uh, no, no. Because we are, we are sitcom geeks. But um, let's go, so it would be great to get to Home, which I've just been catching up on, and what a relief i laughed a lot it was oh, great, great fun oh that is a relief uh, it was me. a it was yes it's right it's it was a joy to watch um 
And but let's go. Let's go all the way back. Uh, you were in a sketch group uh, called Dutch Elm Conservatoire. Is That's that correct? Right. That is. I, I I I can confirm that. We spoke the other day to Justin. Um, uh, Spresny, who was in a bunch in Southampton University called The Firing Squad, which was actually quite a nice name for a show or for a sketch group. Dutch Elm Conservatoire, that needs a little bit of explanation. Yes, and I wish I could offer it. Wish I could offer it, uh, James, but unfortunately it was um, the sort of whimsical, uh, the whimsical choice of, you know, a group of people in their early to mid-twenties. Uh, it was just a sort of nonsense phrase that... Uh, that meant nothing at the start and grew to mean even less as we kind of went on. I, I think it was a very memorable name, actually. I always well, say, it was... I know, it's the, the first thing that I think of when I, uh, when, when I think of your name. And I think, oh, yes, Dutch Elm Conservatoire. Oh, that's it good. It just comes back. It's one of those phrases. <laughs> it, it, feels, it feels a long time ago. And it, it, in a sense, it was. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, I think we started in 2003 and we were, we were slightly unusual in that we, we were five... Well... It, not so unusual in that we were five middle-class men, but um, <laughs> we we didn't really know each other before we started. We were all put together by one of our members, Steve Evans, who knew us from from various kind of projects. So we hadn't come up together through university or anything like that, but we did uh, we did come up through a, a you know a shared penury and sort of need to yeah. need to generate our own material. And um, and we did Edinburgh, which I think back in the day was a slightly kind of financially easier and more realistic thing to do than it is now but uh, yeah. we, we we got we got nominated for the perrier award as it was as it was yeah. then 21 years after i got nominated ah there we go oh well your name was still echoing around the, the corridors of the pleasant <laughs> courtyard don't worry Dave. yeah 1984 being nominated for the perrier award was uh, absolutely no use to anyone at all for anything but interesting well there's an arguable point to say that it's sort of has remained a sort of suspiciously unuseful thing. Um, certainly, certainly when we were nominated, the, the, there were five of us. So as we learned relatively quickly, our chances of getting on television were, were kind of quite, quite rightly limited. Um, but, but the benefits we felt, other than getting a script commission sort of early on from a channel that didn't really lead anywhere, but we all benefited independently as performers. Um, right. So I was there was in a this... halo effect yeah, from all of you. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the group effect was was less, yeah. but we all managed to get because successful that, acting careers. That, because that script commission split five ways. That's not going very far, is it? You know, and and you yeah. know, I, I think we did a read through for Paul Jackson at ITV, and you could you could see him doing the numbers in his head as he was <laughs> listening to this this perfectly acceptable script. Yes, just looking at it. and uh, yes, graciously laughing at all the jokes. He's a very nice man, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, and then we you know we all shake hands and say you know let us never speak of this again. <laughs> Um, but uh, I hope we all I hope we all feel better now. Yeah. Yes. yes yeah. Got it out of our system. Yeah. yeah. Among your uh, group, though, uh, a lot of you, but um, one one name also was uh, Dan uh, Renton Skinner, otherwise known as uh, Angelos. And um, no, I'm not going to pronounce this right, am I? Give it Angelos Epitamu. Epitamu. Epithemu. Yes. Yes. Epithemu. Okay. And he. Angelos yes. Epithemu. Dan. Um, Dan ended up being uh, Vic and Bob's uh, kind of scorer after George Dawes on Shooting Stars, and is now still sort of selling out rooms around the country as Angelos. It was a very, very much loved kind of character. And um, 
And and the uh, uh, Jordan Long and Steve Evans were another two in our group who still pop up all the time and stuff. And Jim Field Smith is our fifth member, who's now a very successful director and writer. And he directed uh, The Wrong Man's with James Corden. Mm, yeah. He now directs Criminal on Netflix and uh, has uh, just directed Nick Frost and Simon Pegg's new thing for Amazon. So he is, yes, he's a kind of one man, one man industry. But we're, yes, yeah. we were all very fortunate. But it was it was interesting that sort of that sketch experience gave us all the sort of separate platforms. What began as a communal thing and which we owe a lot to, I think, I think ended up sort of, yes, being being a sort of ultimately a sort of independent benefit, you know. Yeah. Uh, what was the uh, what was the idea behind it in terms of were you an actor uh, looking for material? Were you a frustrated writer who was? How did you see yourself as that Dutch arm conservatoire was taking shape at the time? I, to be perfectly honest, I saw myself as a financial journalist because that was what I was sort of doing. I had a very, I had a very slippery, but kind of quite nepotistic and privileged kind of route and reroute back into the industry that I was at. I was at Cambridge University and I, I graduated, I got an agent, I tried to act for a year. Uh, I didn't do too badly looking back at it. I got a couple of jobs, but it, it, I was so unprepared. I gave up uh, at the age of 22. I'd gave it a year and I just, I don't know, because I wasn't Orson Welles, I, <laughs> I sort of decided to leave it there. I was, I was very impatient. Um, and I became a financial journalist for five years and uh, I didn't know what I was doing. But uh, I uh, I work for the Financial Times and I, I could write, and I think that's kind of why they employed me. Uh, but I was very, uh, yeah, I was kind of very restless, and I knew that this wasn't, you know, the way that what I wanted to do forever. And a, a, an old friend from university, Zadie Smith, had written a book called White Teeth that was being adapted into. That did a, well. Yeah, it, it was fine. It was fine. She broke even. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was being Great. adapted into a, into a Channel Four series and. Uh, they asked her for casting suggestions and preposterously she suggested me uh, and I hadn't worked for six years and, and I got the part and it was quite a big part. Um, uh, a sub story involving me and James McAvoy uh, and, and I, I, I got an agent and a second bite of the cherry after that and, 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 and I decided that comedy was what I should try to be doing more of because I like writing and... Uh, uh, and, and, and so, yes, I had a, I had a, a second route in, but that route at the age of like 27, so I wasn't a spring chicken, I knew much clearer, uh, much more clearly what I wanted to do. And that was comedy. And I think I knew my voice better. I think I, I knew that you couldn't just do everything, which, of course, when you're at university, particularly Cambridge, is something you can mm. do. But, yeah. you know, generally sort of the the, the greater industry, yeah. especially when you haven't established yourself, you know, is not interested in people who can do yeah. everything. It's it's all about... Although I know. guess the Cambridge thing is a bit double-edged in the sense of, I don't know what would have happened if I'd failed to get... If I'd... If I... If I had succeeded in getting to Cambridge either of the times that I applied, so if I'd got into Corpus Christi to do history... Ah, that's where or I went. <laughs> or, or there we go. Or yeah. Trinity to do... Uh, I think we're the same age, so we probably would have been in the same year yeah. had I been successful. Or uh, if I'd done th uh, theology at Trinity the yep. year after I applied, um, I would have been doing footlights with people like Mitchell and Webb. Or, yes, you would. Or, or, or this guy called John Oliver, who I've just not seen for ages. I don't know where he's yeah, gone. Yeah, what happened to him? Um, and, and actually, I wonder if that is pretty intimidating. There's the plausibility privilege 
everyone thinks, oh, I could work in comedy. And to a lot of people, that doesn't occur to them. But actually, if you're kind of decent, but you're still finding your voice, you look at those guys and they just go off and get a career. And you're thinking, oh, yikes. Well, they uh, sort of do. do that. I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, I was, I was there at a time that included, yeah, John Oliver, Richard Elwadi, who were in a double act at the time. Mm. Rob and David were obviously very double acty and doing their thing. And Matt Holness... Uh, and yeah, it was. It, 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 you look back, and you 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 can sort of put the the contemporary template of what everyone's achieved on that group, uh, and and be very intimidated. And it was quite intimidating, but actually, a lot of people didn't really begin to work until they were thirty out of that mm. group. Um, Rob and David were scriptwriters for the Jack Doherty show for Armstrong and Miller. A lot of sort of you know shows in the late nineties, and I think they were yeah. about thirty by the time. Uh, uh, Jesse Armstrong and Sam Bain sort of uh, and them sat down and sort of uh, put together Peep Show um, so in a sense I got a strength to sort of jump back into it in my late 20s because actually a lot of my contemporaries who I assumed would walk straight into uh, yeah. fame and fortune didn't and it took everyone of my generation a bit longer uh, to to establish themselves there were no there were no Peter Cooks or no, you know, uh, yeah. Mary Whitehouse experiences flying out the doors of Cambridge University and into, into sort of, you know, uh, the tellies, yeah. you know, in, in the corners of our room. It just wasn't happening. So that's interesting yeah. because that's a very similar experience uh, in my my world, which was more uh, stand up comedy. Was that you got uh, people like. Um, Joe Brand and, and Lee Evans, who were sort of brilliant from day one, and then they appeared on telly about three or four times uh, and used up their entire sets and then, uh, and then disappeared for two or three years, went off and actually started again and started in all the small clubs. And, and as a result, I think their longevity uh, was a result of having that, having that early success and then that's it uh but then going off and then uh, you know sort of learning actually learning the trade and and having a life and having had that experience so i think that that definitely stands you in good stead i mean it's more of a it's probably more of a sort of performer's point than a writer's point but but i think there are similarities that sort of in your in your 20s there are very few people who really know their voice know their comic voice and you're trying on different hats i think and Particularly if you're if you're trying to write in your twenties, you know, as Rob and David were, and you you you're writing for other people, so your own voice isn't necessarily defined. And and I think after you're thirty, something I certainly found, you become much more aware of what you can do very well and what you uh, mm. probably you should probably just leave to other people. Um, I remember Ricky Gervais saying, "No one's really funny until they're 30. And of course, there are lots of examples that break that rule but you know ricky's probably the the best example of that um and and i think for a lot of people that that is true you know yeah and i guess people don't see the the paddling like mad underneath and they you know i was involved with miranda and she became an overnight success and it only took her 12 years to become an overnight success Yeah. yeah and when you start to track back and just go oh yeah she was really funny and not going out for quite a long time and she was also in episodes of smack the pony and she so I guess these, but it, it doesn't look like that. And therefore people get quite, uh, I think listeners, particularly who are trying to get into writing, writing sitcoms, 
they they sort of see quick success but actually it's it's years and years of writing scripts and you know you can't even get arrested for a while and you push off for five years and become a journalist you yeah know, and, and but but and you know and you're none the worse as a writer for it I no imagine, no it taught me pretty yeah taught me economy for instance and uh, economy of language there's there's nothing more you know, th- th- there's nothing more demoralising, but also sort of educational than a sub-editor kind of throwing your copy back and sort of they've just, you know, hacked 200 words out of it and and you have to kind of clean it up or, you know, seeing your work go into print and seeing the comp- the hundred compromises that have to operate for that. It's, you know, that that is what our industry is and what it has to be. So, so it was certainly instructive for me. I, I also went off and uh, was a journalist for some years, having uh, dabbled in comedy my student years. And I think one of the one of the things uh, I think the, the greatest thing that I learned from that also was uh, deadlines. Um, yeah. And, uh, for a, for a writer, for a comedy writer, um, having having deadlines is just um, you know it w- I don't know where I'd be without them really. I think uh, I think having any job, any job other than something in comedy is just sort of invaluable because uh it, it it teaches you to work with other people in whatever whatever form that is uh you know whether you're on a building site or, or anything the fact is you know you have to learn how to communicate with people and how to take on people's ideas and i think there is a sense particularly amongst comedy writers especially when you begin that this is a kind of automaton profession that it's uh it's a lot of ivory towers and people kind of sending their sort of gilded bits of a4 down from on high and people just make it but of course the 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 experience is is much more collaborative and you have to be good at taking criticism and and taking notes and i think you know virtually every job involves that in some way you've got to be You've got to be have a have a tough enough exterior to be told that what you did was either wrong or bad, you know. And and yeah. um, there's plenty of that in in our profession. So yeah, I I, I think having that other job is is you know essential. And there's in a way it's it's both having another job and the deadlines thing because it's only really right when you look back. And I wonder if we've missed out on some great works by Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams, I don't think ever had another job apart from writing. And he is the one who has famously said, I love deadlines. I love hearing the sound they make as they whoosh past. Good good joke. Great line. <laughs> try, yeah, but also, Don't try that it. one out in any other industry. Yeah. You missed your deadline? Yeah. You missed your last deadline? Yeah. You're fired. Mm-hmm. Seriously, clear your desk. You're fired. Yeah. Okay, you don't you don't get to whereas in, in you know it's sort of hilarious within comedy writing. Oh, deadlines, deadlines, deadlines. This is like, well, actually, a little bit of discipline would go quite a long way. And you wonder if there might have been another great work from Douglas Adams if he'd got his act together. Uh, but uh, it's not for me to call out. Doug- yeah, you see, Adams, <laughs> yeah. you time waster. You know Never I mean? liked it. I did it. Wow. Yeah. It's got weird, didn't it? It's got weird. <laughs> Let's just go back uh, even before Dutch Elm. Um, when you were uh, you sort of you, you'd be talking about finding your voice in your in your early thirties, late twenties, but was there always a kind of comedy in the sorts of comedies you were watching growing up? Were they? We, we spoke to Justin Spresny the other day from Worst, Worst Week of My Life, and for him it was always Faulty Towers, and therefore, and when you look at Worst Week of My Life and other shows that they've done, the physical comedy and that kind of stuff, and the calamity is 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 evident. Is there stuff that you've always been aiming at? Is there kind of a platonic ideal show uh, that you've got in your head? I think kind of early on, inevitably, it was 
uh, yeah, the British classics, um, uh, everything John Cleese ever touched. And I think Blackadder was a big one for me. My generation, I don't think it depended what background you were from. I remember Blackadder was a big deal. And Blackadder Goes Forth, I remember being about 15 or so when that went out. Yeah. And I remember yeah. everyone in the playground talk, talked about that final episode, the, the morning yeah. after. And that was that sort of language and that sort of uh, writing style felt yeah. entirely sort of early 90s and, and um, definitive. And I think that, that sort of, I, I think sort of everyone in my generation still carries the kind of echo uh, and the anxiety of influence from you know Curtis and Elton there. You, you, you're either you're either trying to ape it or you're trying to get as far away from it as possible. But it's very it, yeah. it's always there on your shoulder. So I think Blackadder was a big one. But then as I started as I started making stuff or or, or you know dared to dream of being paid to write stuff. Sort of the American scene was suddenly more accessible. The, the American TV shows were popping up and things like Larry Sanders and Spinal Tap uh, and Seinfeld had a huge profound uh, shift in, I felt a very profound shift in particularly with Seinfeld in terms, in terms of A plot, B plot, C plot, D plot. And that very sort of Jewish New York kind of celebration of, of mass plotting. Um, I've had a very sad week uh, with uh, Seinfeld this week. I'm afraid I've been because uh, my my kids they they love all all the comedy uh, and uh, we just finished watching uh, Mrs. Maisel. We've just been through the whole three series and uh, you know Jason Alexander pops up in about the last two episodes of uh, Mrs. Maisel. Oh, does he? I didn't know that. That's great. Oh, yeah, oh, I bailed on it by then. Oh well, well, oh, it, 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 uh, trust me, it, it it does ramble a bit, series three, but the, the end, it's worth it for the to the ends of the last two episodes. It, it's just definitely worth it. But my wife and I both thought, oh, God, now is the time to introduce our kids to Seinfeld. Um, and but but where is the question? And the and the answer I've come through a long conversation on Twitter on this. Uh, you start somebody new on uh, the beginning of season four. Because uh, it sort of, we we tried the bits of season two, and it just yeah. Was, just, was, just I didn't like the first two seasons of Seinfeld, <laughs> and I love Seinfeld. There's something, something, some alchemy happens in four where they, I don't know, where they realise George is kind of the lead. Uh, yeah, and suddenly, and suddenly Kramer, suddenly Michael Richards discovers the true. Kramer sort of zaniness door and, comedy door really yeah everything everything suddenly fall, tessellates and falls into place and um but I yes I remember being like your kids the first two seasons I didn't quite get um oh I hope they stick with it because hey it's you know too late I'm afraid uh, they, they, they refuse to go back I, I, yeah I mean I found then when I started doing comedy professionally uh, the, the American scene had, had suddenly started producing shows like The Sopranos and latterly kind of Breaking Bad and shows that uh, professionally have had the greatest influence on me in the sense that although they're not overtly um, comedies, they're these holistic collisions of everything, of drama and comedy. And they they often present themselves as farce because so much plot is happening and they they incorporate emotion and... Uh, a kind of uh, a comic attitude to death, for instance, and 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 tragedy, and 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 they're very contrary in the way they worked. 
And I ended up being drawn to a lot of those American shows, which were sort of your your favourite everything, um, which certainly sort of The Sopranos and Breaking Bad particularly became for me. And when I look at, say, the lineage from home going back to those, that's probably been the greatest influence on the the style I write in now. Um, there's a show called Transparent on Amazon, uh, which I don't know if you know, with, with Jeffrey Tambor. It's one of their first big shows, wasn't it? Yeah, they it was. commissioned. And mm. I, you know, the first the first three seasons, I mean, before, you know, the, the Me Too movement quite rightly <laughs> kind of uh, uh, slightly got into um, Jeffrey Tambor's career and, and, and slightly knocked the show off its stride. I mean, the first three series uh, are, are, are amazing. Uh, and, and for me... I didn't sort of have to watch anything else when I was watching them. It's a unique show, really. Yeah, it kind of is, but then I... Nothing like it, ever. I I just adore it. Um, And that had a a big influence on me, sort of, as I was beginning to write my show. So so I guess, yeah, the American style. Also, uh, Sorkin, like um, the West Wing. There are huge portions of the West Wing which are hilarious and play out those kind of very cocaine walk and talks that Sorkin wrote play out as comedy almost, you know. And, oh, yeah, and, and the, they've got the rhythm as they well. They have the rhythm they? of comedy, of, of rat-a-tat-tat. And, hmm. and, and so it's a delightfully confusing sort of meshing of, of genre and, and, and kind of melting of genre, which I think the Americans probably got to sometime before us. Um, and, and I think maybe, and we'll probably get to this, but yes, the way sort of sitcom has 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 suddenly sort of expanded over the last five years to incorporate a lot of different things maybe a sort of american influence kind of uh, beginning to sort of just kind of tincture what we what we assume and consider to be a yeah. half hour sort of sitcom model you know? it's like it's yeah there's a lot of um it's like ale and beer and everything and there are various forms of all those things we just think is this technically beer yeah, yeah is this I know, I know. and there's an awful lot of sitcoms where you're just thinking is this is this a sitcom i d- you know and the people who make it don't know no no um, of course well yes i mean you know one of the great sort of secrets that one learns as one begins to you know get involved in some meetings or walk into the bbc or walk into channel four is that a comedy is as much defined by who is funding your thing than by whatever anyone actually considers to be funny on the page or not funny on the page. I mean, I, I think I'm right in saying that Sam and Jesse, after Peep Show, had uh, Fresh Meat commissioned by the drama department at Channel 4. And that is a show that, interestingly, for a lot of the comedy community, had a really interesting dramatic edge. But for a lot of people looking for drama, they found it hilarious. And part of that was just because of its because of the profit division it emerged from. Now, that sounds very yeah. sort of boring, but... Actually, Financial journalist. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but you know, these things these things do have uh, an impact, I think. And, and I think increasingly now you see different, different departments um, getting hold of things that 30 years ago would either be comedy or not. But now I just think, you know, they have different roots. What happened uh, about two or three years ago, and J- James and I were on various uh, panels and things, and we'd meet, meet commissioners, and they would all, all be saying, uh, well, we're looking for comedy drama now. And uh, and, and so people would say, well, what, what do you mean by comedy drama? And they sort of go, well, <laughs> you know, write it and see. And then, but then Something quickly, with James Nesbitt in it, I think, was, yeah. was the general rule for about 15 <laughs> yeah. years. But, uh, but the, yeah. the answer then came fairly quickly, was that uh, there was a kind of... Uh, a, a, 
run of shows sort of in, in very quick succession of of which home were, was one uh which sort of uh, so the, when people said, "What do you mean by comedy drama?" My, uh, if someone said that to me. I said to them, uh, "Watch Home." That's one person's example, and and you go and do go away and do your example. But that's that. So that that feels like a little bit from what you're saying about how the, the American model, in in a sense, the American model. D- drew from the the old British way, and the old British way is you know one writer, one concept, one show, and then a- American comedy teams. But then Americans started to borrow the British way, and in a sense, the HBO model is almost like the British model. It's like you know one one writer, one theme, and so it's kind of come back to us almost. I think you're right. I, I certainly. I mean, I'm I'm doing a a job in America. Uh, with with American people at the moment, and it is very interesting how much they revere the UK system, or are fascinated by it at least, and 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 look at the sort of uh, the clarity of having a single author or maybe two, uh, as opposed to having to helm a writer's room, which is bossed by a showrunner, and and you know that is obviously a very expensive way of operating that America's become used to. But uh, but the idea that one person can write six half hours in a few months and for and and for it to turn out okay uh, remains this extraordinary um, commodity which is d- still distinctly British. But uh, I, I think increasingly now there's a reason why when you look at HBO or you look at Amazon you're getting these uh, eight to ten episode uh, shows which aren't the traditional twenty six network things which are you know a team of 20 writers going at it hammer and tongs but these are much more authored uh projects which are the legacy possibly of of people like armando Iannucci or latterly phoebe you know having this tremendous cross-atlantic success and americans i think are more willing to back single authors or at least kind of very very tight sort of pools of writers as opposed to big writers rooms. And you can hear the rest of that interview next time. This is a bit of a shorter episode. We cut it in two. And in the next one, we talk much more specifically about home. We're trying to work a bit less over the summer, give ourselves a bit of a break. But we also want to keep going fortnightly with this podcast. So thanks for bearing with us. If you want loads more audio, then join us on Patreon. Google Sitcom Geeks Patreon and you'll find us. And you'll find a feast for your ears, if not your eyes. Anyway, we're done, I think. Thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.